in the U.S., we know it's coordinated. We absolutely know that. It's certain officials in the Biden administration that are working together with specific regulators, in particular the bank regulators, to marginalize the Bitcoin and crypto industry. Hello there. How are you all doing? Happy Friday. You look forward to your weekend. Right, a couple of notices. Firstly, I'm going to be off to Prague next week, going to be there for the conference. Hopefully, you're going to see some of you there. And also, we have announced our event in Australia. We're heading to Sydney in September, and we will be having a live event. If you want to get a ticket to that, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show, I've got my good friend, Nick Carter. Now, I know Nick has been a controversial figure with some Bitcoiners over the last year or so, but I don't care about that shit. I care about what Nick writes about and his insights into Bitcoin. So any chance to get him on the show and talk about Bitcoin, I'm going to do it. And we get into a few things in the show. We get into ordinals, the inscription debate, as well as Operation Chokepoint 2.0, which Nick wrote about. So if you've got any questions about this show or anything else, please do get in touch. You can drop me an email on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, Nick. I need to put in my Zen real quick. Don't judge me. I have an addiction. I think Zen? the episode 14. I fucking love Zen. What is 14? that? 14? Mm-hmm. That's insane. What is Zen? Zen is a nicotine pouch. It's good for ah, you. That's the thing you keep trying. I raises your IQ by 10 points. I fucking need it, bro. I don't have much left up there. Each one, if I had like four, would I got 40 points? I don't think it's linear like that. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I need my nicotine. I'm a nicotine addict. I just can't inhale anything. I can't inhale a vape. My lungs reject it. Huh. Maybe that's what I need to go to. I recommend Zen. Yeah? They yeah. mess you up though. Yeah? How? They're pretty strong. They make me, like, genuinely, I nearly fall out. Like, it makes you feel like you're going to fall over. Yeah, I'm used to it now. You build a tolerance. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Okay. I might I might leave that one in on nicotine <laughs> conversation. Anyway, it's been a while. How you been? Good, man. When was the last time I saw you a year ago, right? Was it conference last this year? This conference? Or maybe I think it was after that. No, after. we've been since, haven't yeah. we? You guys have a better place this time. Thank you for getting a better spot. Uh, fuck, that was a problem. Yeah. So we booked a spot. Why does this always happen? Well, actually, when you think about it, it's Miami. Miami is a scam. Everyone here is super sketchy. Yeah, everyone's Every sketchy. Every broker. Every, whatever, whatever we do, whether it's buying a coffee and a sandwich or renting an Airbnb, everyone is scamming you. Yeah. And so we booked this Airbnb. The photos look great. We got there. We were like, we got to stay here. And it was like $12,000 for two weeks, which is what our normal budget is. So we spoke to the guy and he said, well, I've got a few other places. This was another 16000 So it was $28,000 for two weeks. And we're like, fuck. But then when you think it through. I five, have a second budget. You guys could use my place. There's five people that were staying here. And if you think in cost of a hotel, we basically paid $400 a night per person. That's actually but, yeah. reasonable. Yeah. So if you try and go through hotels and then book a studio, it would cost more and a lot more traveling. So mm-hmm. um, the cost of doing, doing the job right. Where were we last time? Uh, we that's we got scammed that time as well. That's when we turned up to the place, and as we turned up, this like carload of people came and like, "Are you coming for the party tonight?" And they were having a party no. at the Airbnb that we were meant to be renting. That no, no, that was the second one because we went to the place beforehand and, and we were in the ghetto. Oh yeah, that's well, right. you were in the Gables, but like not the good part of the Gables. No, well, the first place was actually in Little Haiti, mm. and then we ended up in Coral Gables. Hold on, but Nick didn't come to that place. No, right. did, yeah, did he? But that was a nice place. Yeah, no, the place we were at nice. He was just far away from Nick. Yeah, thank you for doing the design district. It's closer. 
All right. But yeah, I've been in, reliably informed this is my 14th episode of this show. Is that right? How, yep. Out of how many? 662. Who else is ahead? Lynn? But that I don't think anyone's ahead now. Oh, really? No, maybe Lynn is actually. Lynn, Lynn was a regular. Uh, yeah, that oh, yeah, Lynn's count. on 26. Yeah, that, that, oh, that doesn't count. Doesn't yeah, count. But apart from that. You know what percentage of the show am I? What's 14 over 600? I'm not going to try mean, and do what's that. that? <laughs> you have a laptop. <laughs> so about, well, 142. I'm not even going to attempt that kind of math five, six, right now. About 1.8%, 1.9%. 2.1. 2.1. Not far off. That's great. Yeah. Wow. I've got this. So I'm, I always do sums in my head. Really? So when I hear a sum, I try and do it in my head. It's, I, I work out these little patterns to do it. So that one was like 14. And I know we've done 660. So I'm like, okay, 40 and 140. Okay, 140, 280, 560. Okay, so that's 2.5% ish. If it, if it, if we did mm. 580 shows, all right, what's my quick guesstimate for the difference? I'm always trying to do sums in my head. I can't anymore. Yeah. No, I have too much brain damage from arguing on the internet. <laughs> so, all right, man. Anyway, you've been good. Yeah, man. Yeah, I uh, I didn't go to the conference, but I was physically in Miami. So it was a good conference. It was. I preferred it from last year. I sent you before we started. Um, it was smaller. Yeah. Which was better. And look, if I could get twenty five thousand people to a conference, I would get twenty five thousand people to a conference. But they still got twelve thousand ish there. Um, I thought the quality of speakers was higher than last year. Uh, I thought the all the kind of side events were a little bit cooler. They're a little bit more dive barry, mm-hmm. not so flashy. I threw a pickleball event. What the fuck was my invite? Um, I didn't know you were a player. Are you, do you I'm play? Not, no, I don't. Well then, I don't even know what pickleball is. It's uh, like tennis for less oh, athletic people. That's that fastest growing sport thing. Yeah. Yeah. We jump on board. Who won? We didn't do a tournament. We just played participation trophies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that like that one right there. That's not a fucking participation <laughs> trophy, dude. We, we we won the W. That one's real. Oh, there was a cup as well. Yeah, we won the league and the cup. Did you guys compete in the FA Cup? Can you get into it from down there? So we've applied now for the division we're in, we can get into it. So we've applied. You have to be accepted, but we think we'll be in it this year. Because non league teams can yeah, you could in theory win the FA Cup. We can in theory win the FA Cup next season. It's it's a non-zero chance. Yeah, there's a lot of zeros after the decimal <laughs> for that non-zero chance. So what you always want to do is, if you're a non-league team, your goal is to get to the first round because the first what happens is the non-league teams all play each other first. Yeah, uh, for like five six rounds, and then um, I mean there's lots of tiered. So say step one's the first non-league division. And then you get step two, three, four, five, six. Six, five, four, three, I think, play a couple of rounds. And then they bring in two and one. Yeah. And if you get to the first round proper, then it's the uh, teams from the League One and Two. Yeah. And Championship. And maybe Conference. Championship. I think it's Championship as well. Well. And then the third round, they bring in the Premier League. So the big goal for any long league team is can we get to the third round because you might get Man United. And you get TV money, right? You get TV money. You might play at Old Trafford, then you split what, split the gate? You get half the gate, doesn't matter how many you bring. And so a lot of the teams, when they do it, they always will take Old Trafford and split. And also it's a chance for the players to one-off game at Old Trafford. Yeah. But sometimes teams are like, nah, screw this, come to our place. So you'll see this like tiny little place that holds... 3,000 people and Man United are turning up. Right. But um, but just to be in the FA Cup itself, it's brilliant. That's sick. Yeah, we have an FA Cup game. And I would expect 
the team we're going to put together, I'd expect us to possibly win our first couple of rounds. Our goal is to try and get a team in step two or step three. So what's going to what's it going to cost you? Do you think to get into League Two? Like to get into the That's football. A good league. question. So because it's been done before, like people have incubated yeah. non-league teams and got them all the way up. Salford did it. Uh, the reborn Wimbledon did it. Dorking a one below it, I think. Um, so if I had to estimate, if you said, "Give me a number now," I'll sort you out. I think it'd be about ten million. Uh-huh. But it could be less. So. You know, for example, this year, over the summer, we've got to spend about 230000 on our ground. We've got to put in new two, two new stands, new perimeter fence. Um, and we've got to do all these things because every league level is graded. Mm. And so, um, you know, if you don't hit the grading, you don't. You they won't allow you to go up. Ne- the following year, we need a new clubhouse because our dressing rooms aren't big enough. That's going to be another 250 Then we might be right for a year. Um, but as you keep moving up, the infrastructure costs go up. The infrastructure costs go up, and then you won't be able to have play league football on ground. We won't, so we're spending all this money while at the same time looking for another site and looking to build on that. Because what, your drainage isn't up to spec or something? You just can't, you can't, get, you can't have a, you know, a three, 4,000 ground there. And, but, and if we're a team that get into the football league, into League Two, we're going to be ones that think we can get to one and perhaps championship genuinely think that and so you need somewhere that could be a 10,000 capacity mm. at some point and so what you really need is a site that you can build upon but yeah I think Wrexham's wage bill this year was probably around two and a half million Wrexham was the one where some American actors bought it and yeah. right as a reality show around that yeah they're like the cool version of us are they are they cringe are they considered cringe or cool it's a mixture. So I've got mixed feelings. Firstly, <clears throat> I think it's great for Wrexham. The town of Wrexham is, and the team just have been, they've been really treated badly by previous owners. Um, and, you know, it's a part of Wales that's a bit deprived. And for them to have all this excitement, it's amazing. Um, I don't, when you watch the TV series, I think um, Rob McAvenny is okay. But, um, oh, he's from It's Always Sunny, right? Yeah, he's all right. I like and, him. But Ryan Reynolds is like, he's trying to be Deadpool. Like you're there in a serious conversation, uh, and he's just—it's not funny. He's Plus, doing the poor character. Yeah, they do like th- they go to like three or four games, the big ones. Whereas we know, I mean, Connor helps. What's it like? We're like pull it, we're pulling the pints and working the gate. We're literally all volunteering to make it work. So it's it's a similar story, but completely different. But but it's great for them. It's great for Wrexham. Yeah, ultimately, I'm happy for them. Um, but it's. We're trying to do it without their funds, but maybe I, th- you know, next ball run I'll find a Bitcoin billionaire and say, "Come on." Have you worked out how many podcast episodes you need to record to get into League Two? That is a good question. How long have we been doing this? Six years. <laughs> one hundred fifty a year. If we did it in ten years, that'd be one thousand five hundred podcast episodes. That's so, a lot. It's a lot podcast episodes. But, You're going to um, have to expand. It can't be Bitcoin anymore. Well, I think the thing that's on our side is we've not raised any money yet. And I, we don't want to do that for the first three years. I think we can do the first three promotions without raising money. And then I think if I go out to the Bitcoin community and say, well, look, I've got us this far. Now we need to raise money. We need 10, 20 million, whatever that number is. You know, this can be our team. We can all get involved. I think a lot of people will be interested. But I'm, also, I'm committing. I'm committing a check to that race. All right. I'm in. I've had a, we've had a few people like that. I've yeah. Had, yeah, but, you know, some, big, some big lumps as well. Oh, mine's a small lump. But, but it's probably still a big lump. Yeah, depends on the price of Bitcoin. Yeah, to, well, it depends on the price of Bitcoin. So if the, there was a Bitcoin run, that's the time to raise money. Raise. Yeah, but um, 
But I, th- like, I don't, I'm not doing this to make money. I just want the team to be successful. So the equity doesn't really matter to me. I'd, yeah. I'd probably want to do what Zuckerberg did and make sure I have controlling controlling decisions. Yeah, dictator for life. life. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, I, I'm not here thinking, oh, I'm going to sell this club one day and make some money. I just, you know, if Bitcoin continues to, look, if Bitcoin t- continues to grow, I will be financially fine and our team will, and one thing is every four years, we get this advantage over other teams that they don't have and that all the Bitcoiners will be interested or well, some will but i i think if when i first announced it people didn't really get it some did i think if the momentum keeps growing people are like oh okay i i get this do the bitcoiners come to the games they do yeah they do so we have a meetup once a month we usually get 50 to 100 there and then i would estimate i'd estimate at least 30 people have got on flights to come to games just for the game i'm still due you're gonna come next time i'm in the uk yeah. Right, we're going to make that happen. Yeah, uh, People listening, I'll be like, stop fucking talking about football. No, 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 this is great. I know, it's a Bitcoin story. Yeah, this is more interesting than my stuff, for sure. Subjective. Yeah. Some people are like, it's, it's funny, some people hate the football stuff. They literally hate it, and they're like, this is a Bitcoin show. I don't want to listen to this shit. And also, ever since I started doing the, the football club, my Twitter engagement has dropped massively. But that's just because the algorithm the algorithm is very fickle, right? But you got I've got two distinct crowds. It's yeah. like Bitcoin and football, and they it's not like Bitcoin and macro or yeah. Bitcoin and I don't know cybersecurity. I know they're like the, they're very distinct. The Venn diagram no, doesn't cross like, very well. Whenever I try and talk about music or cultural stuff, no engagement. No engagement. They don't want to hear it. No, they want me to play the hits. I'm like Radiohead and they want me to play Creep. (laughs) And they hate playing Creep. (laughs) Yeah, it's a tricky one, but yeah. This is such an important project. You you know, and to do it first year, say what you know, we're gonna do and do it, get the trophies was great. Do it again and again and again relentlessly is it's a challenge. You know, funding is a challenge. We've got good sponsors, you know, but we have to get more and continue. Anyone listening want to sponsor? Let me know. Um, yeah. How but, much is it to get a logo on the sleeve? That's gone. Uh, that's that's taken. Yeah. I'll what tell about you, this sleeve? I'll tell you offline. Both but both sleeves are taken <laughs> by one. We, we do well on sponsorship. We in terms of sponsorship, we do as well as a mid-table national league side. Mm. But. And somebody, if somebody heard that, they'd be like, well, that's bullshit. Why would a step five team do as well as a step one team? So I think you get more awareness with us. We're the only team that streams all their games. Well, you guys are televised, yeah. Yeah, we're televised. So we stream all our games and we do all our interviews with the backdrops. I've got a big platform. And so, you know, you can go and pick a mid-table National League side, but the only people who are going to be aware of you are home fans who come to the ground and some away fans who come to the ground, whereas we've got this big platform. So we do very well. That's why I think getting from where we are up until the National League is fairly doable because we have that. Yeah. Um, but growing the, the other big challenge we've got, we've got to grow the crowd. You've got to try and double it every year. Mm. Yeah, we started with 40, and we first took over those last few months. We had like 40, 50 a game. Last season it ranged, but we finished at average about 180, and we had one one game of 327. But next year we need to be doing 
350 a game average yeah. and a couple of big five 600s and that's it's hard finding that many people in bedford in i mean the people exist how many people are there in bedford Oh, 174,000. The people there. Well, so what's going on? It's getting in there. Well, what's so, going on? But the, we, we're not the biggest team in Bedford. Oh, really? So there's a team next door, Bedford Town, who have the long history. Uh, and when we, you know, last season, we started in step six and they're in step three. They're three divisions mm. above us. And so you're the MK Dons to the Wimbledon here. N- no, more <laughs> like we're the Notts County to the Notts Forest. Uh. Um. They thought we were a joke, dismissed us, laughed at us. We won the league last year and they came bottom of theirs. So we're now a division Ooh, apart. So, oh my gosh, wow, there's going to be some good good derbies. Well, so we can draw them in. Derby. Yeah, derbies. There's, Derby. there's three competitions, I think three cup competitions we can draw them in. Definitely two. If that happens, That'd it will be, be crazy. That'll be great. If we get promoted and they don't, we'll have two confirmed league games. They will be sellouts. You mm. will get 1,500 to 2,000 at them. People will get sent off. It will be fucking wild. It'll but, be like the, what is it? The old firm? Yeah. That's what I want to see. The old firm. The Classico. Bedford. The Bedford Classico. We'll get the Bedford Ultras out. Connor and his, <laughs> Connor and his mates. Get the flares. Yeah. But, the, but uh, it's also it's great for the town. I yeah. mean, look, I think the people at Bedford Town are a little bit sad. They see us, they see us as a threat, and I think they're a bit sad that, that we're a reality and we're a threat. But it's good for the town. I mean, the town has this attention on it now. People will defect. They will definitely defect. Yeah. I mean, we do things right. And and I think people are seeing that. We're um, When's this coming out? Uh, this will probably be out on about the 1st of June, 2nd Oh, June. so I can say this now. So uh, there's a ladies team in Bedford, Bedford Girls and Ladies, senior ladies team. They've got um, a reserve team, and then they've got 18 youth teams, girls aged 7 to 16, who twice a week turn up, 200 girls train and then play games on a on a on a Saturday or Sunday. It's a big unit of players. About a year ago, we approached them and said, "Look, we'll support you. We'll get you new kits for the ladies, for the seniors, and you can play at our ground." And then we paid expenses to the ladies. I think we're the only team who paid the ladies in our division. Mm. Not, I can't confirm that, but it was a real support for them. And it was great. Um, and then over the summer, this summer, we've agreed they're going to become Real Bedford ladies. Wow. So we're now going to have, across the senior and the kids, over 250 girls now playing in our jerseys with a Real Bedford logo, with the skull and crossbones. And so that you've suddenly got a base there of kids, mums and dads who play for Real Bedford, who may come to our games, who get behind what we're doing. You also, the whole town is like, oh my God, they're supporting the ladies' side of football, which is great. You know, And so that gives us a real density around what we're doing. We have a similar partnership with a youth setup called Bedford Park Rangers. We hope at some point they do the same and we support them. So we give them money for their coaches um, to do their development. We also have a hardship fund because there are kids who can't play mm. football because their mum and dad just don't have the money. Mm. And so they can use the hardship fund to get boots or pay their subs. And so the end goal is to end up having these, probably you're talking about six, 700 kids playing under the Rail Bedford brand. And that is what builds your crowd. And yeah. that, that's what makes you sustainable. But that also, sorry, it's becoming a Rail Bedford show. <laughs> but this presents the next challenge. So I need to build a new ground. I need four training pitches. I need a gym, a rehab center. What's the other thing I need? But anyway, just say I need those. Oh, an academy. Well, an academy is part of that. But if I build all that, um, we have the home ground. The pitches themselves 
generate a couple hundred thousand pound a year each because they get rented out these 3G pitches, you can build an academy where you can take kids who rather than do go to university or sixth form, they come here and they get taught in this place a part of the week. With the academy, how much time is education? How much time is playing football? Um, three times a week you train. The rest during the day you learn about sports science, so you can take it into very well if you don't make it. Okay, I don't know if that would have picked up, but basically Connor was saying it's three days a week you train and then you're doing your regular school stuff. But these kids are therefore training all day, every day, doing what they like. You get paid for running an academy. And then if you have the gym, that makes money. So, But that's a £10 million mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. I think it pays back, not well, but I think it pays back over five, six, seven years. I mean, it pay for itself, but I've got to find that money yeah. and do that. Where do I get, by the way, where do I get £10 million next? Um, Bitcoiners, Twitter. Yeah, LPs. How do I get someone to invest in that? Do we know anyone rich who will lend me 10 million? You have to create a pitch deck and then send it to me. We'll get on it. But but what what I hope for this is I think this is a, a really great Bitcoin story in that we've created this football center where hundreds of kids go and play football and they're keeping fit. They're getting outside. We're supporting deprived families. We're supporting talented players. And a whole town's, because this will become the most important thing in the town when it happens. It would be, the whole town could become focused on this. And there's, there's a Bitcoin logo on there. Yeah. And it's like, that's cool. It's not us. I'm not arguing about ordinals. We're not arguing about whatever bullshit people are arguing about. It is, here is a community project that a bunch of Bitcoiners made happen. And look what it's done. And I... Yeah, I like I, it. It's very unique. Although we are going to argue about ordinals today. I we think. will. Yeah, but just my last closing thought is: anyone listening, thinking why are you talking about football? The same people who might not be in football probably heard about um, the Bitcoin Commons in Austin and Bitcoin Park in Nashville and these meat spaces that are growing up, um, Pubkey in New York, and people are starting their own ones. I think the idea really is: is like you can go start a basketball team or a minor baseball team or. a you know, local rugby team guys come to me and we'll set up a rugby league team in Bedford or you can sponsor a snowboarder or it can be, you know, a gymnast who wants, you know, I think I just, I, well, I did, I just gave some money to a, uh, a young girl who's um, a swimmer. She wants to go to the youth Olympics in Brazil. She can't afford it. It was like, th- whatever the amount was, it was 3K. I think she was a one K short of funding. We supported her. We can support all these people. You know, th- I think the lesson here is we've all, all financially benefited from a currency which is not inflationary. So we've all bought some and it's become worth more and we can share that out and help other people do things. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's what Balaji calls a network state. Hmm. You know, you start in the digital world and then you go analog. Yeah. You build an analog presence. Yeah. Anyway, should we talk about Wardenoffs? Unless you've got any other questions about the football team. And no, no, no. It's, it's fascinating. You can write I me a 10 minute I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah. I will get the pitch there. Actually, it's, to be honest, it's half done. Yeah, I'll, half give you, done. I'll give you some feedback. Yeah. You got any billionaire friends? Yes. Which, by the way, just my last pitch for this if anyone is a billionaire who's listening, if, if you're a billionaire, you can go, go and buy Chelsea, who are like fourth in the league, and screw it up and end up 12th in the league. Or you could even spend. By a championship team. But the most the most you're going to do with a championship team is hopefully get in the Premier League. And if yeah. you do, you're never going to win it. So your biggest, you can basically get up upper league and finish mid-table. If you buy Chelsea, all right, you can win things, but you've got to spend a lot of money. You could buy a, or half buy a team in the, 
ninth tier of English football, you've got eight promotions to enjoy. And once you're involved, you won't give a fuck that we're not a Premier League team. You'll be on for the ride. So give me a call. <laughs> I'm a Chelsea fan, so I object to that. Statement. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm really sorry. It's been rough. Yeah. I mean, but you, your uh, chairman is, I think, naively thought, as I, you know, as I did when I first bought Bedford, because I did the small version of that, um, that you can buy success. Well, we did historically buy success with Roman. Yes, but you historically bought awesome. success in a in a staged and controlled way. He just went out and was literally yeah. like spraying spraying money everywhere, buying everyone. I mean, how many players is on the books and players are on the books now, and and just threw them all together. I actually felt bad for Potter because I think he's a good manager. Difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users. And BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S A B I W A L L E T.io. Next up today, we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have Unchained. Now, events, exchanges, and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step by step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. Let's talk ordinals. We should do Rail Bedford Ordinals. You've so, got one. Uh, Rob Hamilton. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, where is it? I'll tell you another time. Have you got it? No, I've not got it. Tell me now. I've, Jeremy's got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, okay, Ordinals. I don't, I don't care about Ordinals. Really? I mean, I... You I should. No, I don't care. I don't care as in I don't care if people do it. 
and I don't care if people hate it. I've got a very simple view. Block space is there to be bought or sold, <laughs> and if you're not breaking consensus, you have done nothing wrong. If you've got an issue with the ordinals, you're not going to stop it by shouting at people. It's a bit like, yeah, I can't think of a good analogy, but if you don't like it, propose a bit and see if it gets through. I don't think it will, so accept this new reality. Well, that's a very common sense view. I wish more people had that view. But, I, but I, I'm not too keen on the whole trolling people with it. I do. I think it's a really interesting point where it says, I'm like Bitcoin, so I'm trying to break it. And this, how is exposed problems with lightning? I think super important. I think we benefited from it. Better to find out now than later down the line. Uh, I think dressing up as a wizard and dancing on stage, it feels very uh, Ethereum. And to be clear, their dances, you know, they just didn't execute the dance to it very well. <laughs> they weren't even in time. They weren't in time. Udi didn't know the flossing dance. I can't do it. I've tried. I can't do it either, but I didn't attempt it on stage. Can you do it? I've never tried it. I'm very proud to say I've never tried it's it. It's surprising. Well, I've got it. It's a actually pretty hard. Yeah. They picked a hard dance. They, sh they should have picked an easier one. He's <laughs> doing it. See, do it. that's actually really good. We haven't got a camera on him. Con, you need to come to the camera and do it. <laughs> um... So, yes, I don't mind. I don't think um, uh, Giacomo shouting at Udi online and calling him a uh, scammer is going to make any difference. If anything, it's going to egg him on. He's going to enjoy well, it. that's what he wants. Yeah, totally. So, so I accept this new reality. I, I haven't bought them. I don't have any need for them. I, I think ultimately people will lose money. But It does affect you as a Bitcoiner, though, because it changes the nature of Bitcoin. So yeah. it creates a new regime for fees, yep. for better or for worse. I'm on the side of fees being good. So structurally new regime, it can just block space and so now it costs more. For a long time, Bitcoin was one sat per byte. In my opinion, that's too low, right? So it's good for the long-term security, in my opinion. It creates a new pressure to take transactions off the main chain and use L2s, whether it's Lightning or something else. And it injects new developers into Bitcoin and new uh, startups. So it adds a vibrancy to the ecosystem. So even if you don't um, care about JPEGs one way or the other, it actually does change the nature of Bitcoin. It does. And so the reality is, if you really don't like it, you have to propose a bit and have to get it changed. It's, and it's very not, difficult. Yeah. So Andrew Puelstra, who's not on Twitter, he was one of the architects of Taproot. He had, um, I don't know where he actually made this point, some non-Twitter domain, I don't know where. He said... There's no easy way to bar the insertion of arbitrary data into Bitcoin. And if you do it, if you reverse Taproot and uh, you make it harder to inject data into Bitcoin, people have the bug for it now. They want to do it. Yeah. Right? They'll find a way to do it. It'll be less efficient. Maybe you can insert data in public keys, for instance, like kind of garbled public keys. Historically, people inserted data in op return, right? So there's no easy way to just uh, you know selectively eliminate inscriptions from Bitcoin. Uh, people will find another way to do it. So there'll always be this congestion issue, kind of like from now on. Right, and you probably understand this better than me. But my expectation is, yeah, there's been a, a long debate over the fee market, and yeah, as uh, the block uh, uh, the block reward drops. Um, Will there be enough to provide enough security? And I know there's how much is enough security, but right. bear with me. And yeah, you know, one of the things that people have theorized is that look, yeah, you know, a couple of decades down the line, 
so many people would be using Bitcoin. It will be the settlement layer. It will be expensive to use. Let's not worry about it. So if that does happen, and, and if fees are very high for settling on Bitcoin, it would be very, very expensive to you know put ordinals yeah. within, in, within the block. So eventually, ordinals might get priced out of layer one anyway. That's that's correct. So high prices are the cure for high prices, right? Yeah. So if you think about other commodities, oil. If oil gets really expensive, new um, new oil wells come online, and that creates new supply, and that um, you know that brings back down the price of oil. Bitcoin's not exactly like that, but if Bitcoin block space gets very expensive, people that are inserting JPEGs, which is a very inefficient way to insert image data into Bitcoin, they'll find ways to compress the data, right? So there's ways to do it with code. So instead of putting pixel data into Bitcoin, you could compress an image into a few lines of code, right? So that's the idea of like a generative NFT. So where we are now is in a transition phase where people are still really inefficiently bundling as much image data into Bitcoin as possible. Once fees rise, people will want to inc increase the semantic density of block space and just be far more efficient in terms of how they're embedding data into the blockchain. So it's not something I worry about at all. And it's the same with monetary transactions. If fees rise, maybe it doesn't make sense to do a $5 transaction in Bitcoin. But then you will uh, use a deferred settlement mechanism like Lightning, where, of course, many many transactions are associated with one on-chain settlement. So I don't worry about fees at all. No. And I have seen a lot of discourse like, oh, fees are too high. Too high is a normative. You're imposing a normative lens on what is a market system. If you believe that Bitcoin should be an open and permissionless system, there's no such thing as too high. You could say it's too high for the global south, but that's just unfortunately the nature of the system, right? We can't impose a mandate. We can't uh, impose a, a, you know, a designated pricing on the commodity. It's like saying oil, the price of oil is too high and uh, you know, the working class, they can't afford their rides to work or whatever. That's unfortunate if the price of oil goes too high, but there's nobody that can set the price. And it's the same with Bitcoin block space. Nobody can set the price. We just have to accept the market price and uh, tune our usage of the protocol accordingly. So if it is too high, then we use Lightning. We use other L2s. And I don't think this is like the block size wars. Some, some people have compared it to like a, another civil war, but the block size wars was very different in that we were heading towards a chain split. This is like a very serious question about was this the right thing for Bitcoin? And there were two very distinct camps. Whereas there is no outcome here where something's split in. It is just a use case. So I can't, I've, I've been comparing it almost to like, it's like a Bitcoin culture war we're going through now. Totally. And I'm okay with the fact that, that it, like if we class it as that, but with it being a Bitcoin culture war, it's almost point, like the, the, those fighting aren't changing anything by fighting. And I, some of it's a net negative. Yeah. There's no probably. winners. In, I, th I don't think there's any winners in culture wars. We can see that right now, the culture war we're in. Well, it was a necessary conflict that was going to happen. I think it has actually been going on for much longer than people think. Cool. So um, there have been debates around whether it's okay to insert arbitrary data in Bitcoin, sort of non-economic data from the beginning, right? So back in the day, there was this protocol called Counterparty, yep. which was mediating asset issuance. And back then, you know, there's always been this view among a certain faction of Bitcoiners, 
well, it's risky to have things that aren't Bitcoin being circulated on Bitcoin. Bitcoin should be trading just units of Bitcoin. And Counterparty was proposing an asset transmission protocol. And there was uh, a way to do a multi-sig for Counterparty. And it was rendered non-standard, actually. So there's probably some controversy around this, but I believe it was actually Luke Dash that rendered multi-sig transactions for Counterparty assets non-standard. That doesn't mean they were barred by the protocol. It just means that if you send the transaction into the network, it won't propagate. So you'd have to go to a miner directly to mine it. And so that was back in 2013, I believe. And that actually did help kill off counterparty usage on Bitcoin. They can't do the same now. So, well, um, I mean, I think it'd be difficult for any developer to get a change like that through today. So, But that's just an example showing there has been this conflict between developers and users historically over whether it's acceptable to transmit non-Bitcoin-related data on Bitcoin. And this is just a continuation of that. And in fact, Luke Dash has been vocal on the ordinals debate this time. Again, he's actually been fairly consistent on that. Um, So for as long as Bitcoin has has existed, practically there's been a debate over how much data uh, should be an op return. Should it be 40 bytes or 80 bytes? Is it too much to have 80 bytes an op return? This is just the same debate, but on a much bigger scale, because now potentially we have blocks that are all arbitrary data and that's perceived as excluding sort of regular transactions. So it kind of it causes another change as well. And that when people say to me, like, what is Bitcoin? I'm, I'm always quite simple about it. Bitcoin's just money. But the protocol actually now is more than just money. It's a, it's a market for data. It's a protocol for data. Yeah, I Which, mean... I don't want to explain this to people. It is that, but essentially it is. The thing is, is that we can't control what people do with it. Yeah. You know, So Satoshi put some non-financial information in the first block, yeah. right? Um, early users of Bitcoin put, like if you remember, there's an ASCII Bernanke. I think that was inserted in 2011 uh, into Bitcoin. I think that was through um, arbitrary data insertion in... Um, in addresses, and people have been using uh, op return to put data into Bitcoin for the whole history of Bitcoin. So, as an open protocol with without rules on like who can use it or for what, and as a database that's highly available and has very strong assurances that that data is always going to be there, of course people are going to use it for non-money type transactions. That's just the nature of the system. But a lot more so now. There's certainly now more, but we're still operating within the protocol rules. We're still bound by this four megabyte limit. I mean, obviously the rule changed in 2017 with SegWit, but we're still bound by that limit. So we are still operating within the sort of like actual protocol rule set. It's just that there is a new economic motive to put arbitrary data into Bitcoin. So it has changed in magnitude. I do think there is a potential future block size argument if these ordinals continue to be uh, used and successful. But as we said earlier, you know, more people using Bitcoin for the transfer of money and settlement, that it becomes expensive. Uh, people who are big proponents of ordinals being priced out might be like, well, I think we maybe want to look at a block size increase to make this more affordable. I think that hmm. potential argument comes again down the line. I think the ordinals people would be smart to understand that we need to start compressing the data. There is one valid point, which I would say is that ordinals or inscriptions are kind of subsidized in a way by the protocol. 
because the witness, you pay less in fees, right, than the transaction data. And this is in the witness part of the block. So that Can was... You, I think you should explain that whole thing. I believe this was... So this change came into effect around the time of segregated witness in, in 2017. And if I'm not getting it wrong, the idea was to encourage people to make SegWit transactions and to make it cheaper from a fee perspective uh, to have this witness data. And so because inscriptions are going in the witness, it's kind of cheaper uh, in Bitcoin terms to insert that data. You could say maybe that was a mistake back then because now it's somewhat cheaper to put arbitrary data into Bitcoin than it is to put transaction data into Bitcoin. So that's probably the one sort of like valid point that I would say the anti-inscriptions people have. So the people anti-inscriptions, are, are they, like I say, I'm on that, I don't just don't care, but but actually I think there's, there's more arguments to make me care that I, I've heard than I don't care. My don't, yeah, my... Fear stuff is more about, I've spent all this time, last six years, talking to people about Bitcoin as money, it's the best form of money. And then the, like, there's this curveball that's come in, so I have to deal with that. Um, and I kind of just want to focus on the money bit. But at the same time, like you said, have to, you've just done now, you've given me a very good argument for why ordinals are good. And, well, I, I think it makes Bitcoin better at being money, right? Yes. So it... Increases long-term fee revenue, which increases the long-term security of the protocol, which we totally need. I don't know what the correct amount of security spend is. Maybe there's no correct amount, but I think it's ought to be higher. If the system is mediating a lot of value transfer, we need miners to be incentivized hmm. to do their job. So kind of on a second-order basis, I think inscriptions make Bitcoin more secure from a monetary perspective. And they also create this pressure to do layered scaling, right? Because if fees get really expensive, your motive is to increase the economic density of transactions. So Lightning does that, right? But people need a reason to create an L2, like a roll-up on Bitcoin or to use Lightning. The reason now is fees. Hmm. So I don't really worry about it because all Ordinals does is create this motive for developers to increase the efficiency of the Bitcoin system in terms of the value to the bytes ratio. And we should always be increasing that ratio. I believed in that a long time. And there, you know, in the last two years or so, there hasn't been a good reason to try and be efficient with your transactions because the block space was cheap. Now it's expensive. There's a good reason it'd be like that. And I think all Bitcoiners today believe in layered scaling, right? Mm -hmm. So ordinals being a thing increases fees, increases the need for layered scaling. So I do think it makes Bitcoin be better at being money. It does dilute the narrative a little bit, for sure. So I think that's a valid complaint that people have, like Bitcoin should just be about financial transactions. But the benefits seem really material to me. It's, it's diluted the uh, some of the core ideology as well, because there is certainly a split amongst people who consider themselves Bitcoin maximalists. We were out in, um, I can't remember that bar, the PubKey event the other night, and that's a Bitcoin crowd. Uh, that is, a Bitcoin crowd was probably, I would guess, 95 to 99%, maybe even 100% would have been small blockers, would you say? Yeah. But I think it's a much wider split of those who are pro-ordinals and those who are against it. I could, I'd be guessing 50 I, I would take the other side. I think the vast majority of people I speak to just are pretty 
on the fence that they don't really care. Well, they don't care, but but the pros and the against, they're like, I, I, I've, I've, had, I've seen a fairly even split, but it's diluted that ideology. And sometimes I'm like, that's a good thing because we don't want ideologues here. But at the same time, I don't know when there comes a time when we do need the ideologues, where we've got the people who are firmly... Yeah, I always think of John Carvalho during the Blocksides Wars. I thought he did a very good job at defending on the Bitcoin mailing list with others who just like led in this pass. I don't know if there comes a time when we need it, but um, it certainly split the crowd, and and perhaps this is just going to keep happening. So we just there is no core thesis, and perhaps that's the best thing for this. Well, I think um, one obvious thing it brings more people into Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, and it brings a different breed of person, and I'm always on the side of universalizing and as big tent as possible. So I think it makes Bitcoin more palatable actually to newcomers to see that there's heterogeneity in the community ideologically. The other interesting thing is it actually might help ossify Bitcoin in some sense because the developers now realize there's unintended consequences of the changes they insert into Bitcoin. No Bitcoin core developer really realize that SegWit plus Taproot would equal inscriptions. So I think there's actually going to be some hesitancy in the core dev community to do another change, for better or for worse. And that means that Bitcoin is more likely to be ossified. And so I don't know if we actually need sort of the same foot soldiers that we had in the scaling wars, because I don't see any imminent changes on the horizon. In fact, I think it's actually quite possible that Taproot is maybe the last major change we get in Bitcoin, precisely because of the, the ordinals and inscription things. It makes the devs realize, wow, we tweaked this one small thing, had this huge, colossal effect, so let's not change anything ever again. So uh, from my understanding, the only big change that people have been discussing and want is the covenants that's been discussed. I mean, I don't know how important it is, but that's the only one that I've heard, and that might be five, ten years down the line. The other one that I think I would personally want to see in Bitcoin would be a opcode allowing for the verification of zero-knowledge proofs okay. so that we could create uh, ZK rollups on Bitcoin, which would be an alternative L2, uh, which is has seen a lot of success on Ethereum and I think is a very valid way to compress transactional data, have lots of off- or near-chain transactions, and a, a very small amount of data on the blockchain. So it'd be a big efficiency win. So let's let's compare that to Lightning, because one of the things that has um, has been exposed with this is that high fees have kind of exposed some bugs and issues with the Lightning. Um, one thing we've been trying to get our head around is people say, well, the, the solution to high fees is the Lightning Network. But I still can't get my head around the idea of somebody who has money on the Lightning Network, but they don't own, they're not, they don't own a channel on the base chain. And so in doing so, are they always trusting someone else's channel? And then are they really sovereign? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a very fair point. If the if the settlement fee becomes very high, then the ability to move in and out of channels or to settle channels to the base chain bec- becomes more difficult. It becomes more costly. So Lightning's not immune to high feeds mm. by any means. The security model of Lightning supposes that you can always settle on the main chain. So I don't know if it's a flaw in Lightning. That's just the nature of the system. Yeah. So explain how ZK rollups work. Oh, the short man, version. I wish you didn't ask me that. <laughs> I, I, by the name, I'm guessing a bunch of stuff gets rolled up and checked 
and then get signed that that's fine. It's a way of trusting a bunch of data. Yeah, so, man, that's probably literally the one question that I would hate to be asked on a podcast. So as far as I understand, you have a bunch of transactions that are proposed, they're batched together, and then there's an entity, a sequencer, which creates a digest of those transactions and registers it periodically to the blockchain. And the ZK element is way of proving that they've been honest in terms of summarizing this transaction data and um, inserting the state and uh, creating a faithful representation that gets registered to the Bitcoin state. There's another kind of rollup, which is an optimistic rollup, which relies more on fraud proofs. So the ability to challenge a sequencer um, as to the validity of the data that they're um, registering to the base layer. Um, I'm not a, as much a fan of those ones. I'd say ZK rollups have found product market fit on Ethereum. They seem to work. The security model seems to work. Uh, so I think it's a totally valid approach for Bitcoin to take, but it does require a soft fork. So, Do we know how much capacity they can add to it? Um, I would say almost an arbitrary amount, a really significant amount of capacity. Okay, interesting. We should uh, we should try and cover that at some point. Yeah, John Light has been really good on them. I, okay, he wrote a whole like paper on it. So okay. yeah, there's a few there's a few people trying to do it right now actually um, on Bitcoin. Do you know anything about this Arc thing that I've seen popping up on Twitter recently? I've not looked at it at all. I haven't spent a lot of time okay. on it. Yeah. What about Feddy? I mean, have you done a show with We've Obi? We made two with Obi, and then we did a show with Cali on eCash. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I I think the idea of having multiple competing scaling approaches is absolutely correct. Whether it's uh, federated Chalmian banks, whether it's a roll-up, whether it's Lightning, I think if there was a mistake Bitcoiners made, it was to hitch their horse just to Lightning five years ago. Lightning, to me, is suitable for a certain genre of transaction, basically a high-frequency, small granularity, fast-settling, kind of uh, continuous stream of small payments, that's a, kind of only a very narrow set of transactions that satisfy those criteria. So I kind of lament that there haven't been more attempts at scaling. And it's because Lightning is very good, right? If you remember Ethereum, like five years ago, they had a similar thing to Lightning. I think it was called Raiden. It didn't work. And then they went ahead and proposed like dozens of different other scaling methodologies. I kind of wish that that had been the case on Bitcoin too. But the good news is that we now have a very good reason to pursue new scaling mechanisms. So we're kind of having that renaissance now on Bitcoin. Yeah, we're noticing there's a bit of momentum behind other L2 options. Yeah, I mean, and Lightning has reached some maturity from the protocol perspective, but it still hasn't become totally widespread, which I think is signaling to people, okay, well, let's explore other mechanisms too. This show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Incogni. Now, data breaches happen all the time, and data brokers collect your personal information and or sell it to other companies with just a few clicks of the mouse. Incogni helps you take control of your data again. They reach out to data brokers on your behalf, request your personal data removal, and deals with any objections from their side. 
Now, many data brokers collect your personal information again after some time, so Incogni take care that your data stays off the market by conducting repeated ongoing removals. Now, you can request your privacy in three easy steps. You create an account and tell them whose personal data they'll be removing. You grant Incogni the right to work with you, and that's it. They handle any objections from data brokers and keep you updated on the progress every step of the way. Now, I've just signed up and I have 60 requests now sat with data brokers to remove my details and it only cost me £75. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to incogni.com forward slash Peter and you will get a 30-day money-back guarantee. That is I-N-C-O-G-N-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up today, we have Ledden. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're either sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Well, we actually wanted to talk to you about Operation Choke Point, and uh, we've got some time. We can cover a bit of that. Um, so you might uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're the first person I remember talking about this in Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know if somebody raised it to you first or you saw some discussion, but I'm, are you taking credit for I it? I probably coined the term Choke Point 2.0. Yeah. I'm probably not the first person that had ever pointed out that Bitcoin companies have a hard time getting banked. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. But there was a really specific set of events that happened around the turn of this year that turned it from like a low-level continuous thing to a kind of acute crisis. 
And and do you believe this is a concerted, coordinated campaign to choke crypto out for um, more sinister reasons? Or do you think uh, you can point at things like FTX and say, you know, I, I think if you're a policymaker, you don't really understand Bitcoin or crypto, and you think your job is to protect people. You think see things such as FTX and maybe add GBTC in there or, or BlockFi or, you know, any number of faders and go, well, this is all fucking crazy and this is terrible for consumers and, yes, we should protect them. Yeah, you don't, you don't need a sinister explanation. That's the explanation. So in the U.S., we know it's coordinated. We absolutely know that. It's certain officials in the Biden administration that are working together with specific regulators, in particular the bank regulators, to marginalize the Bitcoin and crypto industry in the U.S. I'll limit to my comments to the U.S. for now mm-hmm. as a reaction to FTX in particular and also because of the midterms, because Congress became split between the Democrats and the Republicans and the regulators, the executive branch, realized Congress is not going to do anything about crypto because the Republicans are more favorable towards it. They won't pass any anti-crypto legislation. So the executive branch realized, okay, we got to take it upon ourselves and do something about this. And their preferred means of doing that, it's a high leverage tactic, is to deputize the banks, to get the banks to do their dirty business for them. And they basically signal to them very clearly, don't deal with crypto companies, don't bank them. But do you, do you think this is a consumer protection policy? Or do you think it's, oh, now we've got the opportunity to do what we've always wanted to do is get rid of this because of the likes of FTX. There's an overt hostility in the Biden admin towards the Bitcoin and crypto space just latently. There's They got the political go-ahead to do it post-FTX because FTX really did actually change sentiment towards the crypto industry in this country. Absolutely. So it gave them political license to do that. Uh, but I think it was opportunistic. It was, well... Um, Crypto is out of control, and we need to do something about it. The other thing is there was a view that the crypto space could actually destabilize the established financial system. And so they wanted to insulate the traditional banks from the volatility of the crypto industry. We know that that's not the cause of the banking crisis. The cause of the banking crisis is interest rates being raised very quickly, and depositors becoming very concerned about the banks and withdrawing their funds really quickly. So those two things are the main causes. Crypto, Bitcoin, the industry going up and down, that's not really the cause. Although it's unfortunate for us that the first three banks that collapsed, they all had some portion of their business was crypto related. So initially there was an attempt to blame it on the crypto space. However, as more banks started to fall, and collapse that were just regular banks, they stopped being able to do that. Yeah. Um, can we just do a quick TLDR, TLDR on each one? Silvergate, I, I was a big fan of theirs. I really liked Alan Lane. Yeah. Um, met him a few times. think he's a good guy. It feels like they at least tried to wind down the business um, professionally and ensure everyone was protected. Um, but they also, at the same time, they very quickly went from a position of appearing to be a very strong bank, traditional bank, that had decided to take the move and support crypto and Bitcoin companies. Um, 
but very quickly found themselves unwinding. What was the background to this? So, yeah. So Silvergate, they're actually choosing to voluntarily liquidate, which is something that people miss. That's very rare for a bank. So they're actually winding down all their operations. All of their depositors are made whole without the federal government having to step in, right? So they're not like the other banks where they collapsed and there was a loss that the government had to insure. Silvergate chose to wind down. Now the question is, why would they do that? Well, on the one hand, they did service almost exclusively the crypto and the Bitcoin space. And so as 2022 went on, their depository base drew down because a lot of their clients were kind of going bankrupt or something like that, right? They also did service FTX Alameda, and so there were investigations launched into them. Some senators questioned their solvency. In fact, Elizabeth Warren and some of her colleagues, they overtly questioned the solvency of Silvergate, which of course, if powerful senators are questioning your integrity, you as a depositor, you're going to leave, right? So that helped fragilize the bank. The other thing that happened was the FDIC, FDIC, the, the federal, the depository insurance corporation, they started to totally ratchet up the scrutiny against Silvergate, basically saying, send us lists of your clients, send us all this data, like tons of bureaucratic tasks, uh, which made their life a lot more difficult. And the Federal Reserve went to Silvergate and said, you need to eliminate your concentration risk. So you can't have more than, let's say, 15% of your deposits pertain to the crypto industry. Now, Silvergate was pretty much a crypto-facing bank, right? They serve crypto companies. So this 15% threshold means it's another way of saying you can't run your business anymore. Mm. So the combination of higher compliance costs to serve the crypto space plus this kind of artificial 15% threshold meant that their business model didn't work anymore. So certainly they suffered a bit of a run on deposits, but what actually happened was they realized they didn't have a business anymore because the government basically told them, you can't run your operation the way you used to. You can't be a boutique crypto-facing bank. So that's actually the reason they chose to liquidate in the end. It reminds me of that conversation we had a couple of days ago with Peter St. Ange, where I was just, I mean, I'm becoming very sympathetic to libertarians, even, you know, whatever my opinions are politically, but very sympathetic in that the amount of work the government does to make it hard to run a business and the amount of money they take from us through various taxation that stops us reinvesting. It's become really clear to me recently. The reason being is, you know, I had a, a little bit of extra cash recently because of the podcast and I was able to buy another business and invest and, and grow. And, you know, I think about how much money I would have if I didn't pay such high tax and the amount of other businesses I could start or invest in and do things. And I know I, I'm a better investor and a better operator than any you know, bureaucrat in government. Right. And so I've become very sympathetic recently. And, and, and that's just the sim same point. It's, you know, that is a successful business that employs hundreds of people, services lots of other companies. They provided an essential service. An they essential were, service. They were one of the few banks that was explicitly, avowedly pro-crypto and allowed these crypto firms to do business in the United States. But here, here, come, here comes the government with new regulations, which makes it hard for them to do business, which means a bunch of people have lost their jobs and a bunch of other companies are struggling to find banking services. So yeah. they are just squeezing good businesses for no apparent reason. Well, and to be clear, they're not doing this through the sort of accepted 
democratic process, mm. right? So what Congress could do would be to pass a law to say, well, under constitutional grounds, banks can't service the crypto industry. If they really wanted to do that, that would be the way to do it. What they shouldn't do or they shouldn't be allowed to do is to have bank regulators go to the banks and say, you can't do business with this legal industry. That's unconstitutional, right? That's a due process violation, right? That happened with Chokepoint 1.0, and it just was unconstitutional. It ended when Trump came into office, but they would have also lost the legal case. They tried it against other types of businesses, weed businesses, adult entertainment businesses, payday lenders, gun manufacturers. So these are politically disfavored businesses that the government sought to choke off through the banks. This time, the target was crypto. It's still unconstitutional, right? Federal regulators can't just persuade banks to not do business with the legal industry. That's not the way it works in this country. So that's kind of my real objection is it's not just that the crypto space has been victimized. It's that they're doing it in an unacceptable way that's not part of the social contract in America. Hmm. So how, how is it different with the Signature and Silicon Valley? So Signature is maybe even a more sinister case because they were actually sent into receivership by the New York Department of Financial Services in mid-March after the collapse of Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank. And so they were nationalized, basically, right? So all the, uh, the creditors were wiped out, the shareholders were wiped out, right? Apparently, uh, this is what their chairman, Barney Frank, said, they were solvent at the time that occurred, mm. right? So they were not actually in such a beleaguered state that they couldn't do business on Monday. They probably could have, right? But regardless, they were nationalized. So that's basically government seizing a solvent banking institution. That's very, very unusual, deeply unusual. In fact, I don't think it's ever happened before. Typically, when banks are sent into receivership, that's because they've failed or they're in the process of failing. So that was a very odd thing to occur. What happened after that was their crypto business, so they had this thing called Signet, which allowed their clients to settle up fiat between themselves on a real-time basis. Uh, Silvergate had one as well called Sen. Sen, yeah. Sen was gone. Signet was the only one left. So I think that was why they had a target on them. And Signet was not sold, even though there were bidders for it, right? So in the sale process that the FDIC managed, the crypto deposits were not sold and Signet was not sold. The crypto depositors in Signature were told, withdraw your funds, leave, find another bank. So the government seizes in this institution, they run a sale process, they, see, they sell the bank to another bank, but in that process, the crypto business is stripped out and destroyed. So that, to me, is intensely suspicious, right? Maybe it wasn't a crypto anti-crypto animus that was the reason they were nationalized, but the consequence was Signature, another explicitly pro-crypto institution, was taken out behind the woodshed and shot, and their entire crypto business was eliminated. With SVB, another interesting tidbit, SVB was not really a crypto-facing institution. They had Circle as a client, but that was about it. During their sale process, the OCC said to the bidders, uh, you can't sell, you can't transfer or acquire 
assets pertaining to three things with SVB, the three C's. No crypto, no Cayman, and no China. Why Cayman? I'm not sure, honestly, but they were basically the politically disfavored portions of their business. So you can't acquire any crypto depositors, you can't acquire any Cayman depositors, and no Chinese startups that had accounts with SVB can be sold. So in each case here, we see a sale process managed by the government, but we see the crypto elements stripped off and not included in the sale. And so the point of choke point two choke point two point zero is to choke out crypto and Bitcoin and as such, because the idea of just outright banning this would take too long. It wouldn't be possible. Wouldn't be possible. Right. You you wouldn't be able to persuade Congress to ban crypto. It's not like China where one person can decide. Like you have to persuade the representatives of the people to do it if you wanted to ban the industry. That would never happen. So the idea was to do it in this roundabout sly way and use the executive branch's power over the banking space to really hamstring the industry. And it worked, frankly. Today, there are very few banks that will accept a crypto business's money. What can be done about that? Is there anything that can be done? Can you separate the banking sector? Can you insulate it from government interference? No, because banks are public-private partnerships. They exist at the behest of the government. They're highly regulated, and they are insured by the government. That's what FDIC is. It's depository insurance that comes from the government. So banks are always going to be beholden to what the government wants. However, if you're violating the Constitution, you can, of course, sue. So certain injured parties are definitely contemplating, and I believe will bring a case against um, you know, certain banking regulators um, protesting the fact that the banks were deputized against the crypto space. So that's one solution. Another solution is uh, congressional oversight, right? So the executive branch went around Congress, even though authority should have been vested with Congress. So certain members of Congress are now pushing back, subpoenas, potentially trying to figure out, hey, hang on, why did the Biden administration go around us and exercise undue authority that they maybe don't even legally have? That's another solution. However, what's actually happening, you know, the way people are dealing with it is entrepreneurs are going offshore. They're starting businesses in the UK, in EU, which has comprehensive crypto legislation in MICA. They're going to Hong Kong, right? They're going to China. So we have businesses that would exist here that are going elsewhere. They're going to Bermuda, Switzerland, Singapore, and Hong Kong in particular, right? So people are just leaving. So the American crypto industry has suffered this huge loss because the government did this. How do you think this plays out? Because we do have uh, an election in two years. Maybe I'm wrong, but I have a feeling the Republicans might win. It feels like we have a little bit more favor with some Republicans, um, not all. Do, do you think, uh, yeah, whether it's DeSantos or um, whether it's uh, Trump, do you think we're in a more favored position, protected if that happens, or do you think they'll do the same? Yeah, I mean... Uh, DeSantis is, I think, explicitly pro-crypto. So yeah. um, that and would obviously be Explicitly anti-CBDC. Certainly, yeah. Trump, I honestly don't know, but um, under Trump, choke point 1.0 was ended. So I would presume that he wouldn't have, he wouldn't inherit 2.0 and think it's a good thing. Um, so certainly a lot turns on the outcome of that election. And a lot of people are looking forward to it and thinking, well, if Biden wins the second term, it's actually curtains for the domestic crypto industry. 
So the other thing that could happen is there could be a successful lawsuit brought by the industry to restrain the banking regulators from doing this. The problem is, normally what would happen is, okay, there's an industry that really needs banking. Why don't entrepreneurs create new banks to serve this industry that's underserved? Well, they tried. That's what Caitlin Long's yeah, Custodia was. They weren't allowed to do it. That was what the OCC chartered banks, crypto banks, were trying to do. Uh, Anchorage, Pratigo, uh, Paxos, right? Those banks were run out of town. The OCC denied all of their applications. So the normal market process of creating new banking institutions to, to serve this underserved industry wasn't allowed to occur because banking charters are being denied. I do see the states potentially getting involved here because the states do have the right to charter banks. That's been one of their key rights historically. The government's trampling on top of that. So it could be the case that there is pushback from the states saying, hey, actually, we do reserve the right to charter these new institutions. Um, so you should let us do it. So hopefully Cynthia Lummis will do something in Wyoming and something will happen in Texas. And Yeah, I, I hope we see more um, defense of things like the SPDI in Wyoming. Wyoming tried to join Custodia's lawsuit against the Fed. I think they actually weren't able to. But I wouldn't be surprised if more states push back and try and seize some authority and try and charter new crypto-focused banking institutions. It's so utterly frustrating to watch this being played out and this choke against something that you know, we may dis disagree whether it's Bitcoin or crypto, but at the same time, this kind of choke out of these free market ideas. Well, I mean, you had a great episode with Luke Roman recently yeah. where he, I think he described it like uh, closing the theater doors before setting it on fire. And I think he's right. So I believe this is an attempt to impose soft capital controls on the American people because what they don't want is capital fleeing the system to an alternative. They want capital to stay in government bonds, where the government has to run inflation really hot and keep yields relatively low so that they can reset their debt position, which is very high, right? So they kind of want people to stay in the formal regulated banking system because the banks hold a lot of these government bonds, right? That's what they want. They don't want people fleeing for the exits. And so to me, this does look like an attempt to impose capital controls, which the U.S. hasn't had since World War II, right? Since Bretton Woods. Um, but I think that's kind of where we're going now. It's kind of an admission that they're fucked. <laughs> I don't think they can succeed in that because we live in this digital world. The rails to move between fiat and Bitcoin, they exist still, right? They weren't successful in killing off the crypto industry. All they've been able to do is delay the transition, but it's still going to happen. Yeah, and if they go after exchanges... They have been, right? Well, See, they've been harassing Kraken, yeah. they're harassing Coinbase. So they're using all the tools in their toolkit. But still, we live in a democracy. We have property rights in this country. The government can't really just kill off legal corporations that they don't like. So ultimately, we are still protected. These institutions still exist. So they can't have a complete victory here. And that's, what's, that's why they're going to lose in the long run. Is there anything we can do or people listening can do? You can talk to your elected representative, honestly. Mm -hmm. So by making a lot of noise around choke point 2.0, a lot of things happened. Uh, Bobby Kennedy talked yeah. about it. In fact, so, I mean, I love it. He shouted me out, right? So that's incredible. Certain members of the House... Uh, can we take a moment there just to recognize JFK's nephew is 
shouting you out. I know. It's, it's a surreal. How moment. surreal does the world get sometimes? I did yeah, I didn't expect any of this would happen. <laughs> Frankly, I didn't actually know who he was before that happened, but uh, I thought his speech at the conference was incredible. Yeah. Uh, he won a lot of uh, support in doing that. Members of Congress held hearings trying to dig into the choke point stuff. The problem is we need discovery in a legal case to actually get the documents so that we can find out what the FDIC was doing, what they were thinking, what the Biden admin was thinking. So we do need a legal process to play out there. So there are potential reprisals that may occur. It's going to take time. And certain banks may come in and choose to serve the crypto industry too. So that might be another way this happens. But yeah, I mean, we've been under the cost here for the first half of this year. I do see some light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, yeah, it's been immensely challenging. But it's just the the latest fight. Yeah, and they're going to keep fighting us. I mean, that's just going to be the status quo from now on. All right. Listen, um, I know you've got to head off shortly. Is there anything we've not talked about that you wanted to talk about today? I mean, that's the most important thing, honestly. Uh, I think we should continue to make noise about it. I don't think we should accept this lying down. I think the Biden admin has overreached, frankly. I think it's a few activists in that. I don't think... Biden himself cares about crypto one way or the other. I think Elizabeth Warren does. She certainly does. Um, and she has kind of a shadow cabinet, people that she got into power. Like the key architect of choke point, in my view, is Bharat Ramamurti, who works for Biden in the White House, who is a protege of Warren's. Uh, so she kind of inserted some of her people in these key positions. Right. But uh, yeah, there's a lot we can do, actually. Um, in particular, there's legal processes that we can employ uh, and if you've been harmed by this stuff, I think you should basically sign on to one of these lawsuits because they will be brought to bear soon. So are there so there's actual lawsuits, active lawsuits, or potential active lawsuits? They're being crafted. They're being so crafted. the okay. um, lobbying and policy organizations like Blockchain Association, Chamber of Digital Commerce, Coin Center, they're contemplating this. But what they need is good plaintiffs. So they need... Uh, firms that have been harmed because they illegally lost banking access, right? So they need the right kind of plaintiffs to come forward to join these cases so that we can get discovery and we can find out behind the scenes, we can get the emails, we can find out what these bureaucrats were thinking and saying. Because I know that if we get in there, that is going to throw a lot of sunlight on the system. And I think, frankly, it was a violation of the Constitution. and I think we'll win the lawsuits. Signature is a good plaintiff? Yeah, I, you would expect them because they've obviously been harmed. So, yeah, I think <laughs> I haven't heard anything from them. Uh, you know, I think the banks are a little bit shy right now because they're going through their own processes of liquidation and there's other investigations the banks. So the banks themselves certainly have been harmed, but they may not be the plaintiffs with the most standing here. All right, well, listen, we'll keep an eye on that. Nick, always good to see you. 15th appearance, or is it 14th? 14th. 14th appearance. I thought we'd done 14th. No, this was the 14th. This is 14. 14th appearance. I'm sure we'll see you soon. We'll see it. We'll do the next one in the Bedford. Okay. We'll get you I'll over. I'll come and see you. All right, man. Take care. Thank you. All right. What do you think of that one? Where are you with the whole ordinal inscription debate? It seems to have divided the camps. The old school super OG Bitcoiners, some of them are against it, think it's bloating the blockchain with a bunch of NFT crap. Other people think it's a new paradigm for the Bitcoin blockchain, for the Bitcoin protocol. 
I'm kind of on the fence still. I don't mind it. I don't know. I'm going to keep diving into this. I'm going to learn a lot more about it. Rizzo has been in touch with me. Pete Rizzo has been telling me I need to spend a bit more time on this. I need to fully understand it. So I will be covering this a bit more in the future. Now, listen, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, as I said, get in touch. Drop me an email on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, hopefully I'm going to see some of you in Prague next week and some of you in Australia in September. Okay, have a great weekend and I'll see you all soon.